hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 45 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Dylan Jacob, the founder and CEO of Brewmate. Based in Denver, Brewmate is the leading provider of direct-to-consumer insulated drinkware and coolers. Since launching in 2016, Brewmate has grown into a community of over 2 million customers with more than 100,000 five-star reviews and revenues exceeding $100 million. In this episode, Dylan shares with us his entrepreneurial journey, from being bullied in middle school and overcoming challenges to get his life back on track, to selling his first company for $100,000, to launching Brewmate after discovering a void in the market for a 16-ounce insulated beer cozy. He talks with us about his rebellious childhood and how he bankrolled as well as proved the Brewmate concept with his very first retailer. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dylan. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story and building Brewmate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lee. So where are you from originally? I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, in a little town called Whiteland, which is like 30 minutes south of Indy, a little corn country town. Corn country. Was there lots of uh, farms and land everywhere? That was pretty much uh, everything that surrounded us. And we literally have a radio station there called Corn Country. (laughs) Corn Country Radio. Here we are. Yeah. (laughs) So what was uh, childhood like? Did you have any brothers or sisters? Were you the youngest, the oldest? What did childhood look like for you? Yeah, so I was the middle child of three. And um, me and my siblings both grew up homeschooled. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom and took care of us until I was in fourth grade. And then my siblings were both three years apart, um, forward and back. And it was something where, like, my dad was super religious. Um, my mom... What religion? He is non-denominational Christian, um, so he's like an evangelical Christian by definition. Um, mm-hmm. And so I grew up in what I would call like a pretty closed-off household. Um, you know, homeschooled. Really, only hung out with kids that were in homeschool groups. Um, the other kids that I would hang out with were either around the neighborhood or in church or some variation. And I, I would say I lived a pretty sheltered life. Um, mm-hmm. parents ultimately didn't quite agree on, uh, on that. And, you know, they, they ended up splitting when we were in fourth grade and my mom believed that, you know, we needed to be in public school and needed to be around other kids, our age that were leading sort of like normal lives in comparison. And so I ventured into public school for the first time in fourth grade 
And that was like a, you know, a super big change for me going from being homeschooled where, you know, outside of just coursework, like we spent a lot of our times at the park or like identifying trees and bugs and like doing science projects and you're very like hands-on and technical and public school is anything but that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I wasn't used to like sitting in a classroom for like eight hours a day. And so it was a a challenge for me, you know, focus standpoint, a challenge going into school where like kids were talking about things that I had literally never even heard of. Um, Like what? (laughs) I'm not even going to get into like details. (laughs) Just imagine like the conversations of fourth grade boys. And, you know, I, I just, I wasn't super attuned to a a lot of the things that kids that age were talking about or or even knew about. So it was just a big shift for me. Let's say I learned a lot (laughs) in my first couple years of school. Um, but with that, you know, there was a lot of struggles. I, I struggled in terms of like where I fit in because I had mm-hmm. things in common with like all sorts of different groups, but it didn't quite seem to really fit in anywhere. And so, um, I kind of bounced around different friend groups for the first couple years of school, um, like fourth, fifth and sixth grade, my friend groups evolved quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. and in that time process, I struggled with a lot of things. I struggled with being bullied. What were you being bullied for? I was bullied too. What were you bullied for? So this town is called Wyland, Indiana. um, And we probably had 99.9% white kids at our school. And Mm. I'm Middle Eastern uh, and Italian. So I have dark skin, dark hair, brown eyes. And like, it was something that I, from day one, um, would be called like a Mexican or be called whatever, you know, slur that kids wanted to and i didn't really know how to deal with it because that for the first time like no one had ever said any i'm like i i am yeah. caucasian like i just have i'm tan like i i was picked on it i have a big nose i have an italian and arabic nose so i i was called uh an eagle or whatever kids wanted to call me other than that i mean it was just random things like you know be sitting on the bus and someone like throw something at me and like turn around and mm-hmm. no one would own up to it. And I was just right. like the, the odd, like odd one out. It seemed for like the first couple of years, like I was the new kid. I had, I was like mm-hmm. easy target. And so I figured out pretty quickly that like my solution to that was violence. Um, mm. And so I remember the first time I actually stood up for myself, we were outside playing dodgeball. Um, and this kid just came up behind me for no reason and just smacked me on the side of the face with the dodgeball. And I don't just remember I like I threw the ball so hard and I just hit him like smack dab in the face and he, like, <laughs> was he shocked like oh my out. god like, <laughs> fell on the ground and started crying and like I got in trouble and had to go to the principal's office and like I tried to explain what happened and obviously like in school it doesn't really matter who started what like if you retaliate right. you're still in trouble and like that was a dangerous thing for me um I you know again I mean I'm just a little kid trying to figure out how to fit in how to stand up for myself how to navigate school and mm-hmm. um so for the first few years of school you know i started to figure out where i fit in like i found good friend groups um i still would be picked on by different kids um some of them you know continuously throughout fourth and sixth grade some of the same groups and um mm-hmm. i answered a lot of those continuously with violence so i was suspended a lot um i was starting to get into fights a lot i was acting out in class. Um, I was trying to fit in. So I would try to be like the class clown and make jokes and speak out of turn. And I just like, again, 
you know, yeah. trying to trying to find my footing. Where did the violence come from? Do you think? Were you angry about your parents' divorce? Were you like kind of lashing out in that way, or where do you think it came from? I don't know. Were you, you just know, like it, it no other choice? It progressed a lot from fourth eighth grade, uh, mm-hmm. but along the way, like I did counseling, I went to anger management, and I never really did define like what caused the anger at the time. Like I had this newfound freedom. I really just woke up to is I was trying to find my way. I was being bullied. I would tell kids to stop. I would try and ignore it. It wouldn't go away. But what I found the actual thing that worked was like hitting a kid in the face. Like (laughs) tackling (laughs) into the They learned to leave you alone. Yeah. Like like that worked for me. I think that was literally it because it by the time seventh and eighth grade turned around, it was no longer like me trying to stand up for myself. It was like, I dare you to challenge me. You know, it had turned into sort of this, like, if you bully me, this is what happens. And so don't bully me. I didn't go looking for fights. I just answered situations with that. Like that was my answer to it. And where did you learn to fight though? Because I mean, I was, like I said, I was bullied too. I remember going out in the backyard and like, trying to just strength train and learn how to punch. And, you know, it's different with girls, you know? So I never actually got to punch someone. And I kind of regret that because I, she got away with a lot of shit, you know, and it really yeah. kind of still pissed me off, but you know, actually karma's a bitch. So it turned out fine, but it's annoying, you know? And so I'm wondering, how did you teach yourself? Were you in your backyard too? Like throwing punches in the air and like trying to rally yourself up. Cause you knew you were going to get into a fight that day or what? I actually remember the first time I ever punched someone. Um, and, and I grew up wrestling. So like I knew strategic, like round game for the most part. Um, but I had never actually hit anyone until fifth grade. Uh, I was at lunch and I don't remember what this kid was doing to me, but like, I basically had gotten in trouble in the cafeteria, but my punishment was I had to go sit at this table that was not my friend's. Um, Mm. and I remember this kid was just like heckling me the entire time during lunch. And like, would not leave me alone. I just was head down trying to eat and wouldn't leave me alone. And I, I, I remember just thought like he was on the other side of the table. And I said, walk over here and say that to me. I dare you. And he walked over and I stood up and I punched him in the face. That was the first time I ever hit someone. And I remember the look on his face was just so surprised. Like, <laughs> what just happened? And then I remember like the feeling inside was like, oh no, like, what did I just do? Because I was at the front, like literally by the the chaperone who was watching over lunch i knew i was for sure getting in trouble for this um but no i mean i i didn't didn't really know how to fight it was just something that like i guess i i unfortunately got better with with experience um and you know each time i progressively got more and more trouble like fifth grade fighting is not the big of a deal you get you know suspended for a day or two um mm-hmm. sixth grade it becomes a little bit bigger deal middle school it's a much bigger deal mm-hmm. and you know in middle school I didn't really get into like any trouble in terms of fights during seventh grade. Um, I, I was wrestling full time, you know, it was was a good outlet for me. Um, I had a good friend group. I wasn't really getting picked on much. Um, you know, at this point, I think I had sort of solidified myself, like kind of in the school and wasn't like the new easy target any longer. And, um, so that didn't seem to be an issue. But what was an issue was like the people that I found my footing with, um, you know, my friends were all in eighth grade, so they're a year above, and then their friends were in high school. So like my collective group of friends were eighth graders and freshmen and sophomores in high school. And um, so I started smoking weed for the first time, uh, experimenting with drugs, uh, selling drugs. 
And, you know, it was something that ultimately wouldn't catch up with me until later. Um, but, you know, it kind of set the stage for what like my middle school years would look like. Surprisingly, throughout this entire process, I was still a straight A student um, from fourth grade <laughs> until I graduated. I, I was good academically. They were always having parent-teacher conferences, talking yeah. about my behavior and this and that and other. And it was a little challenging for the teachers because I did pay attention when I needed to and like did my work. But outside of like when I was supposed to be, you know, sitting down or studying or whatever it was, I, I just didn't really listen. Um, so eighth grade rolls around. And this was sort of when like the whole shit show of middle school and everything I had sort of been building up really piled on top of me. So hmm. I was again, wrestling. Um, and one of our linemen um, decided he also wanted to wrestle. And this was a kid that I wasn't close with. Um, someone who we sort of had issues with each other in the past. And um, if you know anything about wrestling, it's very strategic. So it has nothing to do with how strong you are, or how big you are, or whatever it was. And so um, I had a lot of fun with like beating this kid up on the map. Like it was something that I would be his partner and I was 60 pounds less than him. And I, I, I would win every single time. And that was for like the first few weeks of the season. Um, and he basically said that like he wanted to fight me. He was like, I would beat you in like a real fight. This isn't real fighting. Jeez. Yeah. And well, how did it turn to that? Just kind of past. I, I don't really know. But, nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> it, it came to a peak. I was walking down the hall and he came by and shoved all the books out of my hands. Um, and I just hit him. I It was like just my first instinct. And he had braces. So if you know anything about braces, like they loosen your teeth. So they're moving around and it knocked out four of his bottom teeth. So he, oh my God. he had you know, carpet in the school, they sent school home half day because there was blood all over the carpet and it turned into this huge thing. And oh um, I was expelled from school for that. So I was suspended for two weeks. Uh, and in the process, I had to go in front of the school board to basically go over the situation and why it happened. They didn't see it as self-defense because he just pushed my books. I actually hit him. Yeah. Um, and what grade was this? This is eighth grade. This was yeah. first semester of eighth grade. I was expelled from school for like 12 weeks. It was from, I think. Were your parents like really upset with you or did <laughs> <laughs> they ground you for life? No, I mean, so I, I got permission from my parents that like if people were bullying me and they hit me first or whatever, that I could defend myself. And I think I abused that a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So anytime I would get in a fight, I would wait for someone to like do something to me that would justify the action. And then I would tell my parents, well, this is what happened. And you told me that I could, you know, I could defend myself. This situation was, um, I over defended myself and I knew it. I knew that like, I didn't yeah. actually have a reason to like, like shoving books out of my hands wasn't a reason to assault someone. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, I didn't really have an explanation. I just told them that, you know, I don't honestly don't, don't really remember what I told them. I just knew, I remember <laughs> thinking in my head, like, I'm so screwed. Um, because I was in handcuffs, like the, the police came to the school. Um, I had my bone was sticking out of my hand, so I had to get stitches. So like, it, it was like the whole thing. I, both my parents were there. I could hear my mom crying in the other room while the principal was talking to her. So I was assuming that like <laughs> no. the news they were giving her was not good. Oh, and geez. you know for her like she was a single mom taking care of of three kids like she had full custody so like my mm -hmm. dad saw us like one day a week and every other weekend 
Um, and really throughout the week, like she was the one dealing with us. Um, and I, I made her life very difficult for the first few years. So, you know, it's something that like, I felt pretty bad about. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, I, I, I got expelled. Um, so I was supposed to be self-teaching. So I would get like all my schoolwork and everything else, but really more than anything, I was put on probation. Um, so formal probation, informal house arrest, uh, which just means like I didn't have an actual ankle monitor, but I wasn't allowed to like leave the house and I had a curfew and all these different mm -hmm. things. So pretty much I was on lockdown. So outside of, you know, my parents' punishment, I, I was also being punished by the state. Um, and second semester, I was allowed to come back to school and I hadn't quite learned my lesson yet. Um, I had told myself that I wouldn't be fighting anymore. So wait, you got back, they let you come back. Cause I thought being expelled means you're not, you're done. Like you're not allowed to come back. I was expelled for the first semester. So basically okay. I can't remember if this happened in September or November. I'm pretty sure it was September because I remember it was like pretty earlier in the school year. I was suspended during this like probationary two week period where I had to go in front of the school board, present like my side of the situation. And ultimately, they were the ones that dished out punishment. And so they didn't believe that I should be expelled for the full year. It would have been the first time in Whiteland history that like someone would have been expelled. Um, I got caught not even probably four weeks into second semester. Um, oh, in the bathroom. And I was expelled completely for that. And not only was I expelled, I was in juvenile detention for two months. Um, I was already on probation. Um, I had already been on informal house arrest. And when I got arrested, I failed a drug test. So I had like felony selling drugs on school property. I had failed a drug test, which was a violation of probation. Um, there were a bunch of other things that were put in place that basically I, I had broken. And um, so I ended up spending, it was seven weeks in juvenile detention. Um, I got out and then I had a actual house arrest bracelet for six months. So I was not allowed to leave the house for six months, uh, other than going to church every other Sunday with my dad. That was what I got to do. And I got to wear, you know, the bracelet on my ankle and the nice, big, huge thing on my, around my waist that let everyone know that I was on house arrest. Um, but like the, the seven weeks of juvenile detention gave me a lot of time to think. Juvenile detention is not like jail. So you don't have a bunkmate. You're in a cell by yourself, or at least in Johnson County, you are. Um, and so I, I had a lot of quiet time of uh, pretty much like staring at a cement wall and thinking about like... Does that make you crazy? Because I always think about that. Like I would go nuts, I think. You know, how did you deal they, staring at a wall all day? They broke it up. So it was like... It would wake us up at like 6 a.m. and we'd have to clean. So we'd have to clean like the bathroom. We'd have to clean the common area. Um, and that was how we'd kickstart the day. And then we'd get like breakfast. And then we would like, if you had schoolwork, you would do school for like a couple hours. But since I was expelled, I didn't have schoolwork. I just kept my nose down. Like I was very quiet and really talked to a lot of people in there. Um, and I just remember spending a lot of time really thinking about like, where I came from, and like all the things my mom had sacrificed to get me to like, you know, where I was and what she had sacrificed to try and create a better life for me and my siblings. And, um, and more than anything, I just I felt really bad, I felt guilty, and I felt sick. And not so much about like me being expelled or anything else. But honestly, like, I just I felt like a loser. So I really just started to think about I'm like, where did I go wrong? Yeah. And like, what can I do when I get out of this to like make things better for myself? And, you know, the more I realized it was just like, I had surrounded myself with the wrong people. I was just being selfish. And, uh, and I had a lot of like growing and learning to do. And so I had set goals while I was in there. I knew Wyland had told me 
when I got expelled that I was allowed to come back to high school with a clean slate, but I had a three strike rule in high school. So for all four years of high school, I could have three major offenses, which would be considered like something you would get suspended for, for all four years. Otherwise I was completely banned from like Whiteland school district for good. But I had set goals. I said, I was going to get straight A's for all of high school. I was going to really focus on the friends that I knew were good influences. And so I had set these goals and said, like, these are the people that are good for me. This is what is good for me, like goal setting. And so like, I, I'm going to be a straight A student. I wanted to graduate actually valedictorian of my class. Um, that was like my goal that I wanted to, to achieve. And, um, you know, ultimately, like I got out of juvenile detention, I got off of house arrest, I kept my nose clean. And the month before I went into freshman year of high school, I got completely off of probation. So it was like, a, a really good start for me. Like I felt great. It was a clean start. I wasn't on probation. I didn't have any of these things holding me back. And I, and my parents were starting to like regain trust in me. Like I had really told them ultimately that I, I understood that I was the reason this was happening to me and, and that like mm-hmm. I understood where I had went wrong and like what I'm doing to correct it. So, um, that, that sort of signified like what I call the new beginning. I mean, from there, my life has been sort of a linear line upwards in a positive direction. Um, and and it also it, it, that line really starts from this negative dip in the juvenile detention. I think without that, um, I don't know that I would be like where I am today, or you know that 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 I would be who I am today. I, I think that like that was what really made me hit pause um, and and reevaluate at a pretty early age, where like not a whole yep. lot of eighth graders are doing like self-reflection on the choices they're making. Yeah. But unfortunately, I had made, made yeah. such bad decisions that it kind of forced me to. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. You made the bad decision super early so you could learn from it and uh, you know, get your dose early on. So you had an incredible, you know, experience there. Very unique. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were, when you look back, what did you want to be? Did you have a dream, or were there signs of entrepreneurship early on? So I don't have any entrepreneurs in my family other than my grandpa. So my grandpa immigrated to the U.S. in the fifties from um, a little outside Jerusalem. It's called Ramallah, but from the Middle East, and he moved to Philadelphia. Um, and he was a taxi driver when he first moved here and he met my grandma. He was picking her up on a bad date (laughs) and he was her taxi driver. And she, uh, was actually a Polish concentration camp survivor. She was rescued by the U S military from a worker's camp, separated from her family and came to the U S and basically had a new beginning completely by herself. She's told stories about how she lived off like a loaf of bread a week and saved up all of her money and like got a couple like low paying jobs was able to buy like an old, um, like duplex building and fixed it up herself and then started renting it out. So when she met my grandpa, like she owned a couple buildings and 
he was a taxi driver and they moved to, to Indiana and he actually started, um, it was called my Jacob TV repair. And I actually grew up spending a lot of time there. Um, I would help him fix TVs and VCRs and, um, it was just him and I were very close and, uh, you know, he would make me work for the money. So from a pretty young age, I had like the drive. I've always been super ADHD, like can't stop, can't sit still. So I've always got to be fidgeting or doing something. So I had a landscaping company. Uh, I would literally do anything. So I also had like another flyer that I would send up. There's just like, I'll, I will organize your garage. I'll clean out your shed, like whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for money. <laughs> It's like TaskRabbit um, before TaskRabbit existed, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was a little 10-year-old kid living in an elderly neighborhood with predominantly like 55-plus-year-old um, couples. And so it was it was pretty easy. Like there was a lot of stuff they needed done and they yeah. were more than happy to like have me do it. And I was a hard worker. So I would go do all these different tasks. And, you know, before I knew it, I had sort of a, a cyclical job um, with all these neighbors. And so I had a a pretty good like little business going. I made decent money and was able to buy the things that I wanted. So I didn't have to like ask my parents for them. And when my parents split up, it was kind of the same thing. And, and I knew that I could create value by, you know, kind of putting myself out there and, and figuring out ways to make money to pay for those things. So if I wanted a new game or gaming console or whatever, like that was my duty. I was going to figure out how to pay for it. So I think that kind of set the stage for why I started selling drugs. Um, it was like easy money and my friend group, you know, I, I smoked weed and my friend group wanted it. And so naturally it made sense to sell them it. Um, it just happened to be a very poor choice of, of like <laughs> a little bit of regulation issues. Yeah. Uh, wasn't, wasn't legal. <laughs> I don't think anyway. <laughs> at that point. Um, and definitely not for people under 21. So, right. <laughs> uh, but after the whole eighth grade debacle and, and when I went into freshman year of high school, my mom actually kicked me out. Um, so when she, she kind of just out? said, I've had enough fresh during this whole thing. So when I got out of June out of attention, I went and lived with my dad. Um, she had just, oh, it, so it when you so went off was, to juvenile, she was like, I'm done. I'm done. I've tried. This isn't working. You're out. It was, it was a weird transition. So um, because I was on house arrest in Johnson County, I couldn't actually leave to go live with my dad, technically. Mm. So I had to finish out house arrest at my mom's. But once I got off house arrest, which was like the beginning of summer, she basically did not want me to be at home unsupervised while she was working all day. And mm -hmm. my grandpa, you know, he had his business, but like, he was home a lot of the time. My dad, you know, was a, an auditor for the state and um, he worked different hours that allowed him to have a little more oversight of me. Mm -hmm. um, and she just felt like she had felt me, which in reality, I'd actually felt her like it had nothing to do with her. Um, yeah. She was so busy, like trying to keep food on the table and like whatever else that she couldn't have known, like the things that I was very secretive and, you know, it wasn't her fault, but mm -hmm. I understood where she was coming from. So, you know, for two years, actually, I lived there. Um, lived with your dad or your grandfather? My dad actually lived with my grandfather. So um, he he was living with my grandpa. And my eighth grade year, he actually got remarried. So it was actually like him and his new wife were now living there helping around the house. Um, and they were in the process of buying a house. So for that those first couple of years, while they were like, buying this house to remodel and whatever else, they lived with my grandpa and I also lived there too. Um, it was a weird transition for me. It was just a little bit of a change for me. But with that, I had a lot more time freed up to, you know, focus on kind of building myself up. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandpa. Um, he was someone I looked up to. 
Um, we, we spent a lot of quality time together and again, he had this repair shop. So freshman year, I spent a lot of time there, um, pretty much all my free time. And I kept noticing people coming in with iPhones and whatnot that they couldn't get repaired. And, hmm. um, so I saw an opportunity. I was like, Hey, grandpa, like, why aren't you fixing this? And he basically just said, you know, it was something he was interested in. And at the time parts weren't super available. And so I didn't want to start a repair company, but he would do refurbishing. So he would buy like broken um, VCRs, DVD players, TVs, fix them and then resell them. And I was like, okay, like I could do that with iPhones and iPods. And mm -hmm. so um, that kind of kickstarted what was my first real business. I spent all of my time, I bought a moped <laughs> um, and I spent all of my time scouring Craigslist for deals on like broken iPhones, iPods, whatever. And I would go meet people, my moped, pay them for these devices, order the parts, watch YouTube videos, fix them myself, and then resell them on Craigslist and kind of repeat the cycle. And I was part of like internet forums and other forums sort of around repair. And I knew mm -hmm. that a lot of these people got their repair parts off of eBay and Amazon. And I had learned the hard way that those parts were super low quality. And so I had actually sourced a manufacturer overseas um, that I was getting OEM parts from high quality. And that kickstarted what became ultimately like my first real business venture. So by senior year, I had created uh, what was called GV Supply Company. So we were supplying about 100 repair shops around the US. We had a Shopify store, an Amazon store. I sold on eBay as well. Um, but it was more of like a premium part on there. So it was probably the most expensive parts that were on there. And, yeah. um, you know, doing this combined with, with coursework and you asked earlier about like, did I know what I wanted to be? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, throughout this entire process, um, I knew two things. I knew that I loved being hands-on. Um, so mm -hmm. I loved working with things. I loved creating things and I loved building. And I knew that I was incapable of sitting still. So like me sitting in office or whatever was not going to work. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to be an engineer. Like that was actually what I, I was setting myself up for in school. So I took like calculus in high school. I took physics. Um, like I was setting myself up to go to Purdue or Rose Holman. Those were like my two school picks. Mm -hmm. um, and senior year, I was super busy. So senior year, I was taking my course load that I front loaded the first half of the morning. After that, I would leave straight to an internship at Rolls-Royce. I worked in the engineering department for senior year. I would leave half day. And then I would get home from Rolls-Royce and I'd work on my business. So I was just like head down, super busy. And then I got accepted to Purdue. So I, I got direct admitted to their engineering program, ultimately decided I was going to go there. And uh, you know, freshman year of college was uh, even harder. For me, my internship was sitting at a desk and a lot of meetings and like mm -hmm. a lot of what I said, I didn't want to do. Yeah. I also knew that like an engineer is a very broad. And so mm -hmm. I kind of kept that in mind. But what I was supposed to be doing was rotating semesters. So it was like one semester at Purdue, one semester in my internship, they would pay for housing, they would pay it was a paid internship. Um, and they would also help pay for school. So it was like sweet deal. Um, but I just absolutely hated the internship. It was it was terrible. I couldn't sit at a desk, like was not motivated yeah. to be there. And so I go into freshman year of college and I'm taking like 18 credit hours. I'm running my business full time out of this little apartment that I had. And I was just ripping my hair out. I was right. It's like weight. the same thing as the Rolls Royce. You're sitting still, you're, you know, at a school desk all day learning. So what happens? Do you probably realize what school wasn't for you? 
it, it actually wasn't so much that um, I, I've always been good at school, mm-hmm. but only in the things that I excel at and the things that interest me. But the challenge for me was trying to balance life, like trying to balance my friends, going to the gym and I meal preps, trying to balance eating healthy and all these things. And like, ultimately something had had to give. First semester was over and I was down like 20 pounds. Uh, I didn't feel healthy. I didn't look healthy. I was barely eating. I had pretty much stopped working out. Um, The only thing I really had time for was school during school hours, studying after school hours and taking care of my business. And that was it. And so second semester was sort of what was supposed to be this rotating semester. And so it was a good opportunity for me just to turn down the internship and just take that semester off to focus on on the business. Because it's not like I don't have something to fall back onto. Like I have this business. You know, I the challenge for me was I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur. So you focused, um, you decided to focus on this company, you know, you're like, you're doing this cell phone and iPad kind of repair company business, you decided that's a little bit more important to pursue right now. So where did you go from there? And I want to get to the point, you know, where you started Brewmate. So let's, yeah. um, let's hear about, you know, how that kind of ended and how Brewmate started. Yeah, so between the time that that ended and the time Brewmate started, there was only two years. So it's a pretty short timeline. Part of the reason I actually left was because I had gotten this big contract with this group in the Midwest that had a little over 120 repair shops. And uh, overnight, we sort of almost doubled our revenue. And so I was even more stressed than ever. But I was like, I need to really focus on this. Otherwise, it's going to fail or I'm going to fail in school. Mm-hmm. And so when I left school, um, my plan was really just to focus on building the business. And my goal was actually to like get a warehouse and start hiring employees and try and build a real business out of this. Yeah. Um, so I was like, if I could bring on other team members and really expand this, I think this could be a real business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then very shortly after we started working with this group, they basically said, we want to, you know, work, we want to work you into our supply chain for our, all of our national accounts and make you like a vendor of ours. And we started having conversations around this and they actually decided rather than doing that, they just wanted to buy the company. Um, But it left me in a spot where I basically sold this company and then I had nothing. Like I was not in school. Um, I just sold my company. I sold it for a hundred thousand dollars. I had a hundred thousand dollars in my bank account. And I was like, okay, you know, what's next? But you know, for me, that was a big pivotal moment because I had sort of been doing all these different side hustles, been running a real business actually um, for years. And I never actually considered myself an entrepreneur. My, my pipe dream like as an entrepreneur was I wanted to be able to build and create something that I could walk around and see people using. So the timeline, this was late or like mid 2014 when I sold the company. Um, and so, you know, I call that like my first building block. So it it taught me like the fundamentals of what it took to like start a business and, you know, the task tax aspects, how to source a manufacturer, sort of the fundamentals and brewmate came a couple of years. I, I had had these fundamentals. And so I was just constantly looking for the right idea. And so after I sold my company, I started a couple other companies in between that basically like put food on the table, paid the bills, allowed me to keep doing what I like doing. But at the same time, I was searching for like that right idea, which mm-hmm. ultimately was, you know, I wanted to build something meaningful and impactful and, you know, something that that actually added value to people's lives and that I could actually own and say, like, I created that. And so I kept a journal. Anytime I'd have a product idea, 
I would just write down in this journal, whatever it may be. And then I would sit down each night and I would flush off ideas. So I would look up like, has someone created this before? If they have, did it fail or did it flop? Was there mm-hmm. a Kickstarter and you go, go for it. Um, like at what point in the life cycle did it go away? And, you know, do people even want this? And uh, a lot of the times the ideas didn't go anywhere. The idea for Brume was super simple. Actually, it was probably one of the most simple concepts I ever had. Um, I spent so much time trying to pump out ideas. And then like the one idea that actually stuck was the one that I, it just kind of popped in my head one day. I started getting the craft beer when I was 21 and um, one of the local breweries called Sun King Brewery in Indiana, they only served 16 ounce cans. So my favorite beer from them was called Wemac. And then my second favorite was called um, Cream Ale. It was like sunlight cream ale. And both of those were in 16 ounce cans. And so I found that like every time I would crack one open, the last quarter of the beer would always be warm. And I remember like, that was the idea. It was like, how do I keep a 16 ounce beer can cold to where the last drop is as cold as the first. And ultimately that led me into like the drinkware world. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really know much about stainless steel drinkware or the drinkware space as a whole. But what I found was no one had created a 16 ounce beer can cooler, um, which I thought was like a super unique opportunity. Um, my thought process was, no one's created it because they already did research and no one wants it or someone missed a very key uh, part of this market. And this is a big opportunity. And so I actually went to Sun King um, back to this brewery. They had a little gift shop and I said, Hey, I've got an idea. I want to create a 16 ounce stainless steel beer can cooler that'll keep your cans cold to the last drop. And I want you guys to sell it in your gift shop. I'll put your logo on it. And they committed to 240 units, which wasn't a huge deal, but it helped pay for the majority of the first production order. So like for me, it was a pretty big deal. Um, it, it, it was almost like a risk-free way to try and like bring this thing to life. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause all I had showed them was renderings. I didn't collect payment until further down the line. So this was probably February at this point, 2016. Mm-hmm. And so I had the idea in January by February, they had committed. And I think by May, we had our first like real production batch come in. And this was like a very loose concept around what the hopsolator could be, but it, it was, it worked, it functioned, it did what it said it would do. And like, that was all I needed to kind of prove the concept. So Sun King carried that first 240 units, the rest, um, I had created a little website and was marketing on Facebook and did a couple of giveaways on Facebook. And was the initial uh, vision to be kind of B2B where you're doing customized things like that? Or, you know, where did the vision for D2C come from and being more consumer facing? Yeah, no. So I mean, my background, all my other companies were D2C businesses. So it actually wasn't meant to be B2B. Um, I GV supply company was B2B but everything else I'd done after that wasn't. So Mm -hmm. like the concept for brewmate was I wanted to create drinkware specifically for alcohol and Mm -hmm. in this case, 16 ounce cans. And I wanted to market it directly to people. Mm -hmm. Um, Over this sort of year period, what I found was um, that the opportunity was a lot bigger than just 16 ounce cans. So there, there was a few things. The first was no one in the drinkware space was focused on alcohol. So no one had made not only beer can coolers for slim cans or 16 ounce cans, but no one had made wine tumblers or champagne flutes. Um, and so I, I saw this big opportunity of creating drinkware specifically around alcohol. The second opportunity was no one was marketing direct to consumer. So like no one was running Facebook ads, no one was advertising on Instagram, no one was working with influencers. I was pretty much a wide open playing field. I, I looked up all the companies that were competing in the space 
and they were built in the traditional sort of B2B wholesale world where they were going to trade shows, presenting their new products, working on wholesale distribution, and, and that was how they grew their companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third was age demographics. So the majority of the companies that were out there were really focused on this older age demographic because naturally that's who is shopping in a retail setting. And so we had like this golden opportunity to come in and create new products, market to customers in a way that they hadn't been marketed to ever before mm-hmm. and target a demographic that had never been advertised to for drinkware. Um, and so that was sort of like the the founding block of roommate. Like yeah. I wanted to create a company that was specialized in providing better drinking experience. You know, our age target demographic was like 21 to 35 male and female. Um, and it started off hundred percent direct to consumer for the first two years. Um, yeah, so and thinking, so the first two months, though, you you guys hit two hundred and seventy thousand dollars in sales, and that was starting in November. Is that because of the direct to consumer? Like, can you talk about how that kind of explosive growth happened? I mean, obviously, you got a little bit of a a leg up a few months before doing kind of maybe some B two B deals, but can you kind of speak to that growth? Yeah. So what I found the whole thing with Sun King, like they were the only retailer we worked with that year and actually in 2017. So um, the whole concept behind that was really like, I was a customer of theirs. I knew that their customers also drank 16 ounce beer cans. So it was a great way to get like feedback. And like, I figured that their customers would also enjoy it. And it really just helped me kind of prove the concept and Mm -hmm. also helped bankroll like the first round of production without like with minimal risk. Definitely. Um, in that process, though, the other 760 units that we had were also direct to consumers. So, you know, we did, I remember we did like a giveaway that like got a few thousand shares and like had a bunch of comments from people that were like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And, you know, I didn't know much about digital ads at the time. I was just learning, but I was like boosting the post. Like I would post a picture of it explain what it was and link it to our website and then like just boost the post like that was the the extent of my like digital expertise mm-hmm. uh, but it worked like for every dollar i would spend i mean i i was getting acquisition costs under ten dollars by boosting posts on facebook which is insane i mean these these were not built around like conversions or anything they were literally just like boosting it so people can see it and mm-hmm. they had really really good results and so that was like when i was I, it kind of proved my concept that this was going to work for direct to consumer because like no one had been advertised before. It was like completely fresh material, fresh products. Um, and so the hop slater itself was not the final version I wanted to create it. So the hop slater trio, it fit a 16 ounce can at the time, but I had wanted to create what is now the hop slater trio that fits like, uh, it has an adapter. So you can use it with a 12 ounce can and then can also be used as a tumbler. So it comes with the lid. And the mold cost on that was really expensive. Like it was almost $30,000 that I would have to invest to create this final version. Um, mm-hmm. Cause there's a lot more components to it. And, and most of them are plastic, which are far more expensive to create than stainless steel is. And so basically what I was doing in the meantime was redeveloping the hop slider, trying to dial it in. So we were working on the additional modeling and trying to get that uh, kind of wrapped up. And in the process had come across another product idea, which was the wine slider. Um, so it was a wine canteen that holds a full bottle of wine, keeps it cold for over 24 hours. Um, and that came out of uh, a situation that I got myself into that summer. I was at the beach with a bottle of wine, got a ticket for having glass and glass free zone. Um, and it sparked the idea of this new product that would allow you to bring wine into a glass free zone. Mm. Um, and so I launched this product a little bit different. So for the first time, um, I actually... When was this? When was this, this launching? Was the middle of summer 2016. So, Okay. 
So, so this is leading up to our big, like the $270,000 in sales you're referencing in November was actually the wine slater. It wasn't the hop slater. Okay. Got and it. So, but you were so mentioning that there were social media giveaways that you did that you would boost posts. So I'm just trying to figure out, have you learned anything about, you know, what was it about those posts that you were boosting that you think really caught people's attention? Was it because it was a lifestyle looking image? Was it just, you know, with the words, you know, what advice do you have for boosting posts or advertising in general? My first would be don't boost posts. <laughs> Um, I think the reason that they worked one, the landscape on Facebook was vastly different than compared to now. Mm. Um, and two, uh, the product was brand new. So like no one had ever seen a 16 ounce can cooler before. So it had that shareability factor. Like it was like this brand new thing people hadn't seen. So, you know, I, I, I attribute the majority of that early success, uh, to that. Cause even just from an organic standpoint, like we had a lot of shares and comments and people that were buying the product just from seeing, uh, you know, from like a friend posting or whatever it may be, boosting just gave it more visibility. So um, I like for anyone listening, I would not recommend boosting Facebook posts. 2017, you hit 2.1 million, 20 million in 2018. That's a major, major jump. Um, you know, what do you kind of attribute to that success? One of the biggest challenges for us was cash flow. So we actually started doing a pre-order model. Um, we would basically start doing pre-orders 30 days before the production batch would be leaving. We would use that to pay for like the 30% deposit. And then once the inventory had come in, we'd fully sell through it and then pay the manufacturer. So we didn't actually like warehouse inventory where, you know, we sort of had month periods where we would be completely out of stock. So, you know, in that, that first year we were really finding our footing, like how we're advertising to customers, who our demographics were, and sort of, you know, what products we had in the pipeline, but we didn't have the capability to really scale. And so in 2018, uh, early 2018, I was actually able to get a bank line of credit. So it was, it marked our two year anniversary. Um, and so I was able to get an SBA line of credit for $250,000 that allowed us to like actually buy inventory and physically store it. Um, so I think that was a big catalyst. Um, Outside of that, we had some pretty major growth um, in the product categories. So, you know, the Hop Slater Slim, for instance, that we launched late 2017. By 2018, like White Claw, Truly, um, all these other brands that were using Slim Cans were really booming. And we were the only brand in the world that had a solution for those. Um, so, you know, I think that kind of propelled us forward quite a bit. Did you partner um, with them or something? Or like, how, what did that look like? How did that help you guys grow? I mean, so, so we're an accessory to the adult beverage industry, yeah. right? So like if one portion of the adult beverage industry grows, then like we kind of grow with it because our customer pool size is growing. Um, like the, the amount of people that like that product, you know, in 2017, the only people that were drinking Slim Cans were like Red Bull and McUltra. So it was a pretty, pretty like limited customer base. <clears throat> but in 2018, now it was like almost everyone was drinking some variation. So the product was a lot more fitting. So I, I think that that was a major reason. I mean, the Hopsetter Slim was probably 30% of our revenue in 2018. Um, it was it was a big part of our growth. And um, so, you know, outside of that, it was it was really a lot of um, operations. Like we, at the time, were doing all the fulfillment ourselves. So we were pretty limited in terms of like how many orders we could turn out the door. And, you know, how to deal with that type of growth. We switch warehouses three times in a year and we outsource that to a 3PL. So we were working with a company called Shipmunk. They did all of our um, outbound fulfillment. So they warehouse our inventory, pick back, fulfilled it. So now like 
I didn't have to focus on that. All I had yeah. to focus on was product development and marketing. I guess um, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, if I understand it's accessory of something else, but how do you frame that in the customer's mind so that they relate your product to that? So when someone's drinking White Claw, how are, why are they thinking of Brewmate? You know, what did you guys do in your marketing or partnerships or press or anything to kind of get that word out and become that, you know, link? Yeah, I mean, so it's just something in all of our advertising, we tried to make sure that we weren't advertising our product as a gimmick. Um, the, the insider drinkware space as a whole, everyone was talking about like keeps your XYZ cold for 24 hours or whatever it may be. And um, it seemed a little gimmicky. So we really focused on the wording around like, you know, I'll use a hop slider some as an example, but it was like, we'll keep your truly white claw and make ultra at the perfect temperature until the last drop. Hmm. Um, so rather than trying to, you know, put a time frame around it or whatever it may be, like anyone that's reading that ad that's experienced a warm drink and, and we can promise that they won't have to experience that again, like they can see the benefit in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would name drop a lot. Like we would talk about make ultra truly Red Bull, like whatever the cans would fit. And then we would target um, like truly white claw Red Bull customers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, create like look like audiences on like, okay, who's actually drinking those things and who do we want to be targeting to make sure that we're reaching that demographic? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a combination of like trying to figure out who was actually drinking, you know, the products that are used in ours. Um, and then how do we position it to them to like where they see the value in it? Awesome. And so, you know, you mentioned that you guys hit $102 million in revenue last year. That's pretty enormous. Um, tell us about one of the most challenging moments in you know the past few years in building your business and how you overcame it. The most challenging part of of this entire company has been uh, hiring the right team. Mm-hmm. I my previous two companies have been just me, um, and then you know this business took off like a rocket ship, and I was really stuck trying to figure out like how to build a team around me to support this growth and make sure that we had the right infrastructure and leadership and. It was a little challenging for me. I, I've never led a team before. Um, mm-hmm. I've never worked in like a corporate world or for an advertising agency to understand like what a normal org chart looks like. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of just like figuring out as I went. Um, so I found this methodology over the years where basically um, I jot down like what my strengths are. So what am I good at? What do I want to do day to day? And then where is the business falling short? Um, finance, operations, marketing, like where are the gaps in the business that need to be filled? Mm-hmm. And then from there, like, like, let's just say finance, for instance, I would say like, okay, in a normal company, like, what are they hiring for uh, around finance? So I'd go on like LinkedIn and just search for like other CPG companies that are hiring in finance and like, what are the roles look like? What are their responsibilities? Um, and that was how I, I built a lot of our team was just really figuring out like where the business fell short, um, you know, kind of creating hires out of that. And then in terms of hiring the right people, my methodology was really like hiring people that were a lot smarter than I am. So if I'm hiring someone for operations, like I expect in the interview that, you know, they should be talking circles around me and making me feel like, you know, our company is about to fall apart. Mm -hmm. If I'm hiring someone for finance, they should be making me feel like we're about to get audited by the IRS because we're doing things so wrong. It's like, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, I, as long as they had experience. So, you know, everyone that works for the company has worked with the CPG brand before. It's mm-hmm. fairly nuanced, but like, you know, if, if you, if you're working with our brand, I want to make sure that they're coming, stepping into a role that, you know, they not only have the expertise with, but like they understand how to use that situationally for a brand like ours. So um, that kind of limited us a little bit, but, you know, 
our whole company is built out of people that have worked with, you know, other CPG brands and really are like the best of the best for what they do. Um, and, and I get to focus on like what I'm good at, which is product development design and like go to market strategy for each product. What do you think is the biggest thing you've learned um, about being a founder CEO, being in this leadership position? What have you learned? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple things. Um, like leadership isn't necessarily something that's learned. It, like, it's just something that people follow. So as long as you have like a vision, um, so me, like I had a vision for the product. I was passionate about like roommate and, and where roommate could go. And people felt that. And so naturally, like they followed my lead. And that was something I was super concerned about. Cause I was like, you know, I, 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 I was a 21 year old kid trying to build a team and trying to get people to like, believe in me and the vision. But like, really all I had to do was believe in the vision and they can see that they can feel that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that like for a, a first time founder, like be a little less concerned about like how you be a leader for the people, but more of like, how do you be a leader for the company? Like, how do you drive the company forward and focus on like what the future of the brand is going to be? And as long as you're passionate about that, and you're driven for that, like your team will follow you in also being passionate about the same thing, which is like driving the company forward. And what do you think something that most people don't know about building a business? Like, what do people get wrong when they think about entrepreneurship? I think the idea that everyone can be an entrepreneur. I don't believe that everyone can be an entrepreneur. Um, Why? Why do you believe that? So I don't believe that anyone is born like there's not like an inherent talent or or like um, gene that a person has. But I can tell you, out of all the founders I've met, they all have things in common that not everyone has, and like it's the ability to like jump blindly into something that they truly believe about. Um, you're sort of trained to believe that like you're confined within these. And I think that a lot of this is really just like the way that we're raised, but it's like, you go to school, you get a job, you work for someone, you don't mm -hmm. get the, you don't get to hire people. Like you work for someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was kind of raised the, the same way, right? Like I, I was in school, didn't running a business, but didn't believe I could be an entrepreneur and wanted to become an engineer and, build products for people because I didn't think I could do it myself. At that time point, I mean, I wasn't an entrepreneur. I didn't have the tools necessary. But the switching point for me was like, when I actually took the dive and kind of jumped off into the deep end and said, like, I can do this, I am going to do this, and I have no other option but doing mm -hmm. it. That was when things really changed for me. And so I think that the people that have the capability to become an entrepreneur are the ones that are capable of like shutting that little voice in their head off that says like, don't do it. Yeah. And if you follow that voice for the rest of your life, like you'll never make the jump and you'll never do it. So that's why I say like, not everyone can do it because not everyone can turn that voice off. Mm -hmm. Like it's a passion project. You've got to be passionate about what you're doing. It can't be motivated around the wrong reasons. Like I want to be famous or I want to be rich. Like in the case of entrepreneurship, like I'm going to start this company to become a millionaire. Well, that's not how it works. Like you should be starting a company because you believe you can create value and value creates money. And you know, ultimately right. money generates wealth. Like there are right. steps in between. And so I think that's, that's probably a huge, another huge misconception. Like when, when that stops working, most people just give up and the ones that do succeed are the ones that are able to look at it and go like, well, here's why it's not working mm -hmm. and I'm going to change it to try and make it work. Like it's not a failure. It's just like a, um, you know, sort of a trigger or like something to tell you that you need to shift direction. And if you can't take that, if you just look at it as a failure, then like you're going to quit, go back to your job, never try again. 
Right. And then you'll say, you know, well, I tried and it didn't work for me. Right. But the reality is, yeah. So before we wrap up here, just final question, you've already shared a lot of amazing insights. Um, do you have any other final advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or, you know, business operators out there tuning in? Yeah. I mean, I think I touched base on a little bit of it, but the, the one thing I try to rehash all the time when I'm talking to new entrepreneurs is not expecting instant results. And if something's not working, not taking that as a sign of failure, but rather like being able to take it as almost criticism, like it's criticism mm -hmm. from your customer, it's yeah. criticism from the market, like telling you, we don't need this right now. We don't need this product. Um, and, and that it's your job to figure out what they do need. So like, rather than just taking that and saying like, my idea just didn't work mm -hmm. trying to figure out like how to tweak it to make it work. Like if, if people are giving you just listen, like, honestly, uh, I think the biggest thing that I've learned over the years is the ability to listen to feedback and not take it as criticism, but rather like try and pick out little things that can help me become better or help the company become better or products become better. Like that is how you see like evolution of brand is like the capability to listen. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that too many entrepreneurs give up too early because they're not patient enough. Mm -hmm. They, again, they really just expect those instant results. And when, when they don't see them, they, they quit. And, you know, I think true passion is what separates people apart because passion is what is going to keep you up in the morning when you have no money and you're trying to figure out how to make this thing work, not money, because if you have no money, like you're not gonna be motivated by money. Cause you're going to say, well, like this is not working and I'm going to quit and go back to my job. Mm -hmm. If it's passion though, like if you're, if you truly believe in this vision, then you will do literally anything it takes to make it work. And, right. and, you know, I think that's what I always see in successful founders is that passion. Yeah. There so has to be passionate. an emotional, emotional drive is uh, very, very powerful. Yeah. Like chase things that are close to you, chase things mm -hmm. that you're passionate about. Don't try and chase like money or success or, or whatever. Like those are byproducts of passion. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time and sharing your awesome story. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.